see skies of blue clouds of white the bright blessed day the dogs say good night in my family we say the dogs say good night because we love doggies and also that's what my wife thought the song said when she was little which i think is so cute i also have an iphone recording of this song of me playing it on a guitar i built for my dad and my dad my wife and my kids singing it and it is one of my most uh it is a document of one of my most uh, treasured memories, I'd have to say. Um, yeah, what a wonderful world. I talked about uh, old Pops on the 4th of July, the 4th being his spiritual birthday. And then he died on July 6th, which is uh, the day I'm recording this. So, uh, you know, give him a listen. I, uh, you know, I, I know I talk about Louis Armstrong a lot on the podcast, but he's a really, really important figure to me, an important person in my in my world. I mean, to start with, you know, he reached the top of his art form. He was a brilliant player. He defined the genre that he worked within for at least a generation, and his influence is still strong. And that's and that's just a really a, a significant accomplishment when it comes right down to it. And then, you know, I, I called him in the in my little trailer on the 4th, the, the most American of Americans. And, and, you know, what I mean by that is, man, he's the American dream. I mean, Louis Armstrong was uh, somebody who, well, as Duke Ellington said at his funeral, he was born poor and he died rich and he didn't make any enemies along the way. I know I've said that before, but it's a it's a sort of remarkable thing. I mean, I think that... He was born into the most abject kind of poverty. He lived in an orphanage. He uh, was taken in by a poor family of Lithuanian Jews, the Karnofsky family. When he was seven years old, he lived with them for a long time. They helped him buy his first horn. He was a, uh, you know, their employee, I guess, technically, but they were you know, they were poor themselves. They, they had a rag-picking business. They would get junk and resell junk and he would uh, would work with them the mother sang him lullabies in yiddish and he learned to speak yiddish and was fluent in it and and could you know could converse in yiddish throughout his life and maintained a good relationship with the jewish community wore a star of david he was very ecumenical in a lot of ways he was very just accepting and tolerant and uh and he loved people and that kind of love and joy just comes out of his music and it really, uh, you know, joy flows from, from his horn. And that's really, you know, the essence of why he's so great for me is that he, uh, you know, distills all of the negative experiences he's had in life into joy. And man, I, I just, I wish I could do that. I try, but, you know, he was better at it. 
in addition to being a you know a beautiful human being, he was also a beautiful man. He was really an interesting looking character, very distinctive um, throughout his life, uh, and you know he was the you know uh, subject of art and caricature. And there are just so many great paintings of him that are just you know just fabulous. He remains a, a powerful uh, you know subject for the artist and and uh, you know in thinking about a, a piece of art to accompany the podcast, I. You know, I uh, decided to use one that I've used before. And it's a painting by a New Orleans artist named Todd Lyons that I have in my kitchen called uh, Mighty Armstrong. Shows a very young Louis Armstrong with a newsboy cap on. Teenager, probably, probably around the time he left New Orleans to go join... Papa Joe Oliver in Chicago. Anyway, young Lewis is kind of squashed into the right-hand side of the painting in the crescent of the river that flows around New Orleans, and New Orleans is in the background. He's larger than the city, and on the shining river it says, Mighty Armstrong. It's a great image. I love it. My wife bought it for me off the fence at Jackson Square. I don't know if any of you have been to that art show in New Orleans. There's a, in Jackson Square, they have this wrought iron fence, and then artists come and they hang original artworks on there, and you go and buy them. Some really amazing stuff. She got another little reminder about how we need Jesus, but I'm going to. Save that one for another time. You know, we've never been to New Orleans together, which is, is a regret that will hopefully be rectified. But she came back from a Tennessee Williams concert. Uh, concert. She came back from a Tennessee Williams conference there. And, uh, you know, she saw that hanging on the fence. And she knows that I love that art show for various reasons. And uh, she knew I would love that image. And she got it in. She brought it home. And the minute I saw it, I started writing a poem, and I, I published it in a in a publication called the Deep South Magazine, and it, you know, it's in a direct response to that painting. It's called Mighty Armstrong. It says they lied when they said Louis Armstrong died and turned into that river, when mere levees could not contain its melody. Old Muddy turned into him, and you know whether he turned into the river or the river turned into him. I, I like that the river turned into him in my version because it's. Uh, it's sort of uh, beyond the scale of the river. He's he's in the he's in the consciousness of the world now, but uh, the idea is the same, really. That his talent overflowed the banks of New Orleans, and you know I like it because he he started playing on river boats and Fate Marbles Band. Uh, and he eventually took the river up to Chicago to uh, meet Papa Joe. So, you know, the river literally, he literally flowed out of that town on the river and then got larger and larger. He was worldwide to the point where he played a crowd of 150,000 people in Africa and became one of the most recognizable humans on earth, became the representative American to a large portion of the world. 
And I love that story, and I, I don't think it's wrong. But I guess the other story would also be that uh, he wasn't good enough to stay in New Orleans at that time. You know, I heard a really interesting lecture one time that I, I don't know if it's right or not, but it was about fisheries, the cod fishery specifically. And the story went, you know, if John Cabot was out looking for codfish in what's now Massachusetts at the time of Columbus, then they'd already fished out the fish stocks around the British Isles at that time. They were already in the end game for codfish as a species. The idea is, you know, why go far when there's something good near home? There's a story about the great buddy Bolden, King Bolden, who was active in New Orleans around the turn of the century. These record companies were, were all hot to make a jazz recording in the teens in the early days of the record industry. And of course, they ended up making, uh, you know, the original Dixieland jazz band did Livery Stable Blues. But they wanted to record Buddy Bolden. They wanted to pay him 25 bucks. That might have been real money in 1915. I don't know. He said, 25 bucks. I spend that in a night on gin. I'm not giving you anything. And the deal was, you know, he was too successful to need to record. <laughs> he made his living as a live musician, as every musician in the world before him had. But Louis Armstrong was different. I mean, you know, I think ultimately the genius of Louis Armstrong is that he understood the recording studio and the power of these emerging technologies. Um, but I want to argue that a lot of reason that he took that opportunity is because uh, it was kind of a closed shop back home in New Orleans because, uh, you know, there were so many good players there. And players who didn't need to embrace that new technology to continue to make a good living. You know, Ralph Ellison, who wrote the great American novel, Invisible Man, was also a trumpet player. He went to Booker T. Washington's famous Tuskegee Institute um, on a trumpet scholarship in 1933. He was a trumpet player. And he was a, a really great jazz critic and writer and and a lot of his jazz writings are his jazz writings are still really worth reading but uh a point that he makes in one of his essays he's talking about uh growing up in oklahoma city and the musical culture that that um, existed there he was friends with charlie christian's brother charlie christian was the first great jazz guitar player if you don't know him he came to prominence in um benny goodman's band in the 1930s um, and unfortunately died young of tuberculosis. There are a lot of uh, indications um, from some, some jam session recordings at Minton's Playhouse in the early 40s um, that Charlie Christian was a very, very important force in shaping bebop as it evolved in the 40s. Uh, but he was not around long enough to cash in on it. But anyway, um, Ellison claims that he wasn't the best in Oklahoma City and that every town had a Charlie Christian or a, you know, Charlie Parker or 
fill in your musical hero and that live music was such a, a vibrant art form and occupation at the time that 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 everyone everyone had their their musical heroes and and that often those people didn't need to leave town or search for a living because they made a good living playing music close to home so I would say that what defines the genius of somebody like Charlie Christian or or uh, Louis Armstrong or Hank Williams or Patsy Cline is not that they um, you know were just the best at what they did but they saw that the social order of the future was going to revolve around some emerging technologies and some emerging ideas and that they were ready to embrace those things and jump on board with that rather than simply being stuck in the model that they'd inherited when they came into the world. And that's not to say that they're not coming from traditions or foundations because they were. But they saw that they were changing and they recognized that they could absorb and assimilate a lot of that, uh, the best parts of the past and carry that forward into the future without nostalgia. So people like Louis Armstrong, uh, I think, were able to like break into a new thing and do, you know, do the old art in a new way because they just recognized the, um, the cultural moment they were in. And of course, I'm thinking about this because, you know, we're, uh, we're emerging from a pandemic and we're in a new cultural moment. And we're in a new technological moment. I mean, I discussed this somewhat in my Live Music Are Better podcast, um, which most people thought was a terrible title. It's a reference to a Neil Young song. I thought it was great. Live Music Are Better. But, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic, but we're also in a, in a, you know, a record industry that doesn't support and develop new talents and most of the people that I, uh, you know, listen to are on small record labels or their own record labels. And I think also most of the people I'm drawn to who are new and, and people I talked about in that podcast particularly are embracing a, a more live sound, a less, uh, a less produced, a less sort of studio sound. And then, you know, the reality of it is for most of these people that, uh, that making a living for them uh, requires touring and performing live because the record industry just doesn't give up the kind of mailbox money that it used to give up. So I think that, that uh, I guess what I'm thinking about here is that at some level, you know, when Buddy Bolden thought of the record industry as it was emerging as a novelty that didn't really matter for music, uh, it's not impossible that it was a novelty that lasted somewhere near 100 years and is maybe fading away at a, at a certain level. Um, and that live music is maybe king again. Um, it certainly is available, and it certainly remains true that, you know, your town probably, or near your town, still has a Charlie Christian in it. There's a guy here locally that that is a legend. I... I there used to be a radio show around here that was an important part of my jazz education, and and um, 
and the the guy who hosted it was a drummer in Charlie Bird's band. I don't know if you know Charlie Bird. He's a New York guitar player. Was um, and and he said that our local guy Charlie was better than Charlie Bird, and he was somebody who never really got out of town or never really you know had fame. And I don't I don't know if he wanted it, but he was somebody that you could just walk into a club on any night and listen to and and if you were uh, an informed listener you would really recognize that you were seeing uh, a player of exceptional talent and then of course the other side of this coin is that because technology has made available like home recording and lo-fi uh, DIY kind of recording options for all of these people that you see, then they have recorded music either on their website that they'll stream or on streaming services. Um, or, you know, they'll sell CDs. If they do, um, by the way, it's still a nice way to, uh, uh, you know, to support the artist and get the music because they're not making anything from streaming. But, you know, the streaming is to bring people into the concerts and to and to build their following. I mean, just as in the old days, the concerts were a way to get people to buy the records, you know, the flip side of that now is that the the records are the way to get people to come to the concert. And uh, it's not just that you can support that, like you should go out and support things, you know, like they'll often say like, oh, support local businesses. And I go, well, okay, I, I want to, but they also better have what I want. <laughs> I want to suggest that these local musicians probably have what you want and that it's a really good idea as we start to be able to move around in the world again it's probably a really great idea to go somewhere where you can see that not simply to support it which I also believe in but because I think that you will find a kind of greatness that is relevant local and accessible to you. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I'm a performing musician, you know, so I, I guess I'm in a, I guess I'm around it maybe in a way that is a little bit different than other people. But when I think about like some of the most moving experiences I've had in in listening to music have come, you know, uh, connected to my personal life. I mean, usually when, you know, one of my friends lays down some beautiful version of a song that you've never heard before or writes a new song that's brilliant and and you're sort of there at the creation of that um you know but even if you're even if you're uh you know not in in the in that context where you're writing and performing songs you can go out and see it you can know these people and 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 i don't know if that's important to you or not but i just want to say, you know, like, I'll, I'll go to the farmer's market and see some kids playing who are truly gifted. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I like to show them some love. That's what I'm saying. Um, so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, say that Louis Armstrong wasn't the greatest trumpet player in the world or that I don't, you know, love his music more than any other I'm just saying that you can have something like the experience of, of that probably right outside your front door if you just go looking for it. 
And I just think, you know, in a way, things are so slick now on the professional end of things. And like, you know, slick is not necessarily good and good is not necessarily slick. Uh, you can go out and find, uh, you know, your experiences of art locally. Uh, you can buy that picture off of the fence at Jackson Square if you live in New Orleans. And you can go see your Charlie Christian in your hometown. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, uh, you know, and thanks for supporting the podcast, of course. Spread the word, if you would. Um, speaking of, you know, the DIY revolution. <laughs> I'll see you next week.